next reading is from Exodus 15. I don't have a page number, but it's not difficult to find. Exodus chapter 15, most of it. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he, hur he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger. It consumed them like stubble. By the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood firm like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy boasted, I will pursue, I will overtake them, I will divide the spoils. I will gorge myself on them. I will draw my sword and my hand will destroy them. But you blew with your breath and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall on them. By the power of your arm, they will be as still as a stone. And your people pass by, O Lord. And the t until the people you bought pass by, you will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance. The place, O Lord, you made for your dwelling. The sanctuary, O Lord, your hands established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. When Pharaoh's horses, chariots and horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought the waters of the sea back over them, but the Israelites walked through the sea on dry ground. Then Miriam the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women followed her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. This is the word of the Lord. Our Gospel reading is found in the Gospel of St Matthew in chapter 5 on page 970 of our Pew Bibles. Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 43. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I tell you, 
hate. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit to guide us and direct us in our thinking. And we pray that that same Spirit may guide and open our hearts to the truth of your word, for Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. I was given a book for Christmas called The Sacred Art of Joking, written by a Christian comedian. I saved the last chapter till this week after I finished preparing, and it said, don't begin your sermons with a joke. So I'm not going to. But in reading that book, I thought there's actually some parallels between being a comedian and a preacher. A comedian has to, as far as possible, know the context in which he's telling his jokes. So, for example, a joke that he might tell in a northern working men's club wouldn't go down very well in metropolitan, gentrified, new labour Islington. And for us as preachers, uh, we have to, as far as possible, know our congregations. So, for example, as a school chaplain, I could tell a joke in school assembly at the expense of my team and know that 99% of the assembled 700 people would get the joke and most would agree with it. How many supporters, Manchester United supporters, does it take to change a light bulb in the changing room at Old Trafford? And they would respond when I gave the answer. But then, confronted with a biblically literate congregation, I could ask you the question, how do we know Moses wore a wig? No? no? Well, you were grown. Sometimes he was seen with air on and sometimes he wasn't. But the importance of knowing your biblically literate congregation uh, is extremely valuable when it comes to preaching. And when you're taking services, particularly the baptism service, where most of the people have no real understanding of biblical imagery, I, I don't, don't get me wrong, I love liturgy. It was my favorite subject at Theological College. But in the baptism service, in the prayer of the water, for example, in the 1662 prayer book, which uh, I was only ever allowed to use for the first 20-odd years of my ministry, it says this, Almighty and everlasting God, who of thy great mercy did save Noah and his family in the ark from perishing by water, 
and also did safely lead the children of Israel, thy people, through the Red Sea, figuring thereby thy holy baptism, and by the baptism of thy well-beloved Son, Jesus Christ, in the River Jordan, did sanctify water to the mystical washing away of sin. Hmm. What imagery does that convey to those who were listening to it? And having, uh, on, in my first curacy, two shifts of uh, six baptisms uh, on a Sunday afternoon, two shifts of six, I wonder what image that left. More prosaically, the current um, common worship prayer over water says that you led, your, led through the, wa- the water the children of Israel from slavery in Egypt to freedom in the promised land. Well, a biblically literate congregation I'm faced with this morning. And in the chapter that was, would have been read before the one we heard this morning, where there's a description of the Exodus, a most significant and important event in Jewish history. And today we're going to look at what the Israelites did immediately after the Exodus. They sang a song of celebration. We heard it in that reading. One of the ways we worship God is through music. That's where we find Moses and the Israelites here in Exodus chapter 15. They'd just been miraculously delivered from their slavery in Egypt and became free to worship God. So they take the time to sing a song of celebration to the Lord for his miraculous uh, dealings with them. Jews today call it the Song of the Sea, and it's incorporated in their daily prayers, such is the importance of the event. And it's said every morning because it's such an important event in their lives. But I want us to look at three reasons that the Israelites sing to the Lord and ask ourselves as Christians what it means for us. Firstly, they worshipped because... God is victorious in the first 10 verses of chapter 15. The children of Israel have all the reason in the world to be singing because God had freed them from their slavery in Egypt. On top of that, God just eliminated their enemies right in front of their very eyes. I read a wonderful story in a commentary I was given about Exodus in which Uh, someone was preaching in an African-American church, a liberal preacher who was telling the story of the crossing of the Red Sea, when one of the congregation shouted, Praise the Lord, taking all them children through the mighty waters. What a mighty miracle. The preacher was very annoyed, and as he didn't believe in miracles, he condescendingly said to the congregation that the Israelites were in marshland with a living tide, wading through six inches of water, not to be outdone. In response, the same voice shouted, Praise the Lord, drowning all them Egyptians in six inches of water. What a mighty miracle. (laughs) We see here in 15 verse 1, Moses and the children of Israel coming together, singing a song to the Lord. They're not just singing a song to remember what had just happened. Their song is a heartfelt song being sung to the Lord himself. God himself is being addressed. 
not each of the Israelites nor the nations around them, but God is being praised. And God had shown them his salvation is real and his power and his presence were with them and they were his people. So they give glory to God for the victory. They sing, I will sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted, both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. You remember the Israelites were afraid because they'd seen Pharaoh and his army coming and they were trapped and there seemed to be no way out. But now they could look back and see how God had allowed that to happen so that he could miraculously make a way for them to escape from their enemies and at the same time destroy their enemies. In verse 2 we see that because God is their strength, he's also their song. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. That's why they're singing now. They're overwhelmed by God's strength and goodness. And the best way to express that is through song. The famous preacher C.H. Spurgeon said of this, the song is all of God. There's not a word about Moses or Aaron or indeed Miriam. But the next thing that we notice is in verse 2 that they recognise that salvation isn't something just a universal experience but a personal thing. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him. My Father's God and I will exalt him. As God had been with their fathers, so God was with them. But more than that, he was now their personal God. Individually, he's my salvation, he's my God, and I will praise him forever. There's so much more in this chapter, but we must press on. What does this mean for us as Christians? Well, I was talking with a man who was concerned about things that were happening in the world. He seemed to think that God had no power to control the powers of evil and the forces of darkness in our world. Thankfully, he's wrong. Some people make the mistake of thinking that Satan is the opposite of Jesus, that he's just as powerful as Jesus, but he's wicked instead of good. So they think that Satan has the same kind of power. That couldn't be further from the truth. Satan is a created being, created by God as an angel, but then corrupted by sin and thrown out of heaven by God. He has no power against God Almighty. And that means he has no power against you and me. He can't snatch us out of Christ's hand and steal our salvation. He can't kill us. He can't force us to sin, though he may well lead us into the way of temptation. God's presence is everywhere, but Satan can only be in one place at one time. He's not omnipresent. And as Christians, you and I can sing a song of celebration because Christ has won the victory over Satan and we're free. Jesus won the victory for us over Satan at the cross, defeating his power over us as Christians. Paul said in Romans, the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. As Christians, we're in a battle constantly seeking to overcome Satan, 
Our struggle isn't against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the whole armour of God. Interestingly, the Christian author, comedian, said in his book, it's more, you're more likely to be arrested today as a conservative Christian, conservative with a small c, than for blasphemy, food for thought. So Satan can fight, but as Christians, we live in Christ's victory. God has won the victory. Secondly, we notice here that the Israelites worshipped God because he cared for his people. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? The world's false gods had proved a failure. Egyptians worshipped lots of false deities that proved absolutely useless. But in comparison, God cares for us as individuals. We showed his care in verse 12, in that he swallowed up the Egyptians. He showed he cared in verse 13 for his people by leading them by his mercy and love, redeeming them, guiding them, and upholding them in his strength. He shows his care by bringing fear on the people of Canaan, the land into which they were to come. Let's not forget that this song is being sung before the Israelites have encountered any of the people in the promised land. <coughs> They're singing this song of celebration in faith, knowing that because God cares for them as his people, he'll make this happen. What about us as Christians? We're able to sing and worship and enjoy God's freedom today because God cares for us. Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. <coughs> and Peter says, cast all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Cast all your care on him. No matter large or however small our burdens are, God tells us to cast them on him because he cares for us. What are our cares and our burdens this morning? Finances, family, work, health. <coughs> Excuse me. Just a few examples, but the list goes on. And those things can pull us away from Christ and weigh us down. Don't be anxious, said Paul. But in everything, in every situation, by prayer and petition, Bring your requests to the Lord. And as we give our burdens to him this morning, let him guard our hearts and minds, for he cares for us. How special and amazing is that? God's freedom allows us the freedom to bring our needs to him. And finally, we worship because God delivers his people. God had answered the prayers of the Israelites over many years for deliverance, and we've seen them singing about it. He delivered them from Egypt, giving them their freedom, and now they're on the verge of the promised land. You bring them in and plant them in verse 17. And they say this with confidence, knowing that God has promised it and will deliver it. 
On top of that, in verse 18, they realize that this deliverance isn't just a temporary thing. They know that the Lord reigns forever and ever. God's kingdom is eternal. When I was a choir boy, we sang the famous Alleluia Chorus from Handel's Messiah, and indeed I've done it several times since. I love the words, King of Kings, forever, Lord of Lords, forever, Alleluia. And when I think of heaven, I picture us singing songs like that, where we're just praising the name of God forever. And indeed, in Revelation, it speaks of the song of the servant of Moses and of the Lamb. Great and marvellous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. All the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. I imagine that song will be even more wonderful than the Alleluia Chorus. So the Israelites are affirming the fact that God will reign forever over his people, whom he's delivered And that's worth singing about. And then in verse 20, Miriam gets in on the acts and starts to lead the women in worship as they sing and play tambourines and dance, celebrating God's deliverance of their people. Reminds me of a story I heard of a a man who asked a minister, can Christians dance? And the reply came back, some can, some can't. I'm firmly in that latter category. It was a special and joyous occasion. What about us as Christians? Jesus says, if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. Having been set free from sin, you become slaves of righteousness, as Paul writes in Romans. God has delivered us from sin and death. So you and I have every reason in the world to be rejoicing. Nothing, absolutely nothing, will separate us from his love. And as Christians, that means we're delivered. So let's live our lives in his victory that he's achieved for us. Celebrate the fact that he cares for us and celebrate our freedom to worship him, knowing that he's set us free. Amen.